0: What do you call a day when every answer is yes? That is the question on the front cover of the children's book by Amy Rosenthal called Yes Day. Here is the literary trailer for that book. No matter how silly the request, there is one day a year when kids always receive positive answers. Can I have pizza for breakfast? Yes. Can we have a food fight? Yes. Can I stay up really late? Yes. This day is simply called yesterday, and it's the best day of the year. I mean, that does sound pretty cool, right? I mean, one day a year where normally you would say no to something, but on this day you would say yes, a, a, a day of memories, a day of fun that is a little different than all the other days. The problem comes when Yes Day becomes Every day, that's when it really gets messy, right? This past week, Sean Grover, a psychotherapist, published an article with this heading over the article, Are You a Bullied Parent? This is what he writes, a generation or two ago, it would have been unthinkable for children to bully their parents. Today, nearly everyone knows a parent who is bullied by his or her child. Pay a visit to your local playground or stroll through a shopping mall. You're bound to see the bullied parent dynamic in action. On the surface, it looks like an angry child harassing a parent who's just too tired to say no. Underneath, there is much more going on. So what's going on underneath? He writes, You're likely to find a child who has learned how to exploit his parents' insecurities to get what he wants. As parents see power, children grow more aggressive. Seeing a leadership void, they begin to lose respect for their parents and decide to fill the parenting role themselves. They start to parent their parents. Those kind of days are not good yes days. Those are not the days that you want. Someone in the church sent me a great article this week by Melissa Edgington. I quoted her a few weeks ago in the sermon. She's a young wife and mom. She has three kids, 10 and under. And she wrote this past week responding to the concept of yesterday, and also responding to some of these comments from Sean Grover. This is what she writes. It turns out that parenting is just like the rest of life. The right choice is often the most difficult one to make. So I propose if you're having trouble with your kids bullying you, If your little people are ruling your world and you don't know where to start turning the ship around, have a no day. Get up, determined that the answer to most questions will be no. She goes on. It's true that saying no isn't always easy, but one thing I can testify to, the more you say it, the easier it gets. Saying no is important to your family's spiritual growth. No woman can serve others or focus on her own spiritual formation or the formation of her children as long as she is caught in a day-in, day-out struggle of being bullied by her own kids. Wow. Don't miss that thought. That if the answer is always yes, nobody grows. <laughs> that, that sounds a little odd to our minds, right? Because we, we kind of like hearing the word yes. Yes. But the truth is, if yes is always the answer, then nobody grows. So if you are not a person who hears the word no, you're not growing. You see, you can't grow as a person or a family or a team or a business or a church if the answer is always yes. The answer has to be no sometimes in order for there to be actual growth. And in the context of the church, that means in order for us to actually follow after Jesus Christ, sometimes the answer has to be no. Now, is no an easy answer to give? No. Is no an easy answer to hear? No, it's not. Edgington goes on to say this. It won't be easy, but it is essential. Say no and see a new life emerge for all of you. Wow, new life. Now, now we understand that, right? A a new life. Some of you here this morning are wanting a new life. Life is hard. Life is difficult. Life is stressful. It's discouraging. It's depressing. You know that tomorrow there's things that you're facing that you don't want to face. New life sounds great. But you're also thinking, wait a minute, what does this have to do with me? I mean, I don't have kids, or, or my kids are, are already grown, so I'm not being bullied. So, so how can I have this new life? You know what the biggest bully in the world is? The biggest bully anywhere. The biggest bully is sin. Sin's the biggest bully. Sin is always trying to get you to say yes to whatever it's offering. But here's the problem. Sin is a liar. Sin doesn't tell the truth. Sin is the biggest scam in the universe because eventually every promise from sin doesn't follow through. The ticket holder is left empty and defeated every single So, how do we avoid this kind of bullying? How do we avoid the bullying of sin? Well, Paul's going to help us in Titus chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. Apostle Paul writing to his friend Titus says, For the grace of God has appeared. What is grace? Well, we could describe grace as, you know, when somebody walks into a room and and they're just smooth, you know. they got that uh, attractive way of just kind of stepping into the room you know kinda like you always think about me you know when I come in you know or or grace could mean that someone is just very polite they're very pleasant you know they really know how to carry themselves in conversation or in, in the way that they act but that's not the kind of grace that Paul's talking about here Webster's dictionary currently has a number of different definitions for grace this is number one part a under the noun section Grace is unmerited divine assistance given humans for their regeneration or sanctification. Now, back in 828, in the original version of Webster's Dictionary, Noah Webster said it a little different, at least the counterpart for this definition, and I like the way he wrote it years ago. Grace is favorable influence of God, divine influence or the influence of the Spirit in renewing the heart and restraining from sin. That's just great so grace is unmerited direct influence from God to renew and rescue the heart and grace is unmerited direct influence from God to keep the heart from sin that's a great definition now Unmerited, of course, if we don't know, means that you don't merit it. You do not deserve it. So grace is not deserved. And by definition, grace also can't be earned. Can cannot earn grace. Now that's foreign to us, especially in our American Western culture, because after all, as the old commercial says, we make money the old-fashioned way. We earn it, Right? That's how I used to say, man, this is all about earning it. We we earn what we have. There ain't no free lunch. But the reality is you, you can't earn grace. It's not even possible. You can't do it. In any way, shape, or form, a person cannot earn grace. It is something that is a gift. Now, here's why that matters. Paul's writing here, and he's saying to Titus, listen, grace has appeared. Grace has showed up. In other words, if God did not allow grace to appear, then grace would not have appeared. Since we can't earn it and we don't deserve it, there's no way we can make it happen. So our access this morning to any of the grace of God is because God made it happen. You see, it's not like breathing. That's, that's common grace. So you're not breathing this morning because you have a great exercise routine during the week. You're not breathing this morning because you keep up with your doctor's appointments. You're not breathing right now because evolution got it right billions of years ago and worked out all the kinks. You're breathing right now in this moment because of the common grace of God. That's it. It's the only reason that we're sitting here and breathing in this moment. But Paul's not writing about that kind of grace. He's not writing about common grace. He's writing about unique grace. He's not writing about the grace of what it means to be alive He's writing about the grace of what it means to be spiritually alive. So this grace that appeared, it had a purpose. There was a, a reason this grace came. And what is that purpose? What is that reason? Look at the next part of verse 11. Bringing salvation to all men. So this unmerited, unique grace that appeared appeared for the purpose of bringing salvation. That's that's why it came. Now, salvation is a strong word if you really kind of sit and marinate on it for a minute. Salvation is a word, especially when you connect it with grace, that kind of communicates this to us. You are in need of being saved and you cannot save yourself. That's kind of an offensive thought, right? That, That I can't save myself, but I really need to be saved. Years ago, I heard it put this way. If you're out in the body of water and you're drowning in a whirlpool as your head begins to go underneath the surface of the water, when you reach up with your arm over the surface, you're not reaching up with your arm trying to pull yourself out. You are reaching up with your arm hoping someone will grab you and save you and rescue you. That's the picture we have of salvation. Jonathan Edwards in his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, put it this way. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. And you have no interest in any mediator and nothing to lay hold of to save yourself, nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you have ever done, nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. Not really Christmas card material, right? <laughs> kind of heavy. But, you know, we can debate and, and we can talk about these things and we can say, oh, man, I like the power of positive thinking more than all this stuff. But the reality is we cannot in any way escape the message that comes from heaven, and that is, is that we are in need of being saved and we cannot save ourselves. I mean, it sounds kind of bleak and kind of depressing, kind of down, right? Right? And, and it is. It's, it's purposeful, you know. It's kind of like I heard one time, the, the notion of God has a, a wonderful plan for your life. Well, technically, God has an awful plan for your life, you know. If you reject Jesus Christ, there is no good that comes. But if you do not reject Jesus Christ, yeah, there, there's, there's wonder beyond your imagination. The message from heaven is, is tough. And the first part says... You need saving, and you cannot save yourself. That's the first part, but there is a second part. See, there's good news to go along with the terrible news. In a book called Sinners in the Hands of a Good God, David Clodfelter talks more about the second part, the, the good news. Daniel B. Wallace, years ago, had a sermon, Sinners in the Hands of a Gracious God, where, where he talked about the second part, you know, the encouraging part of the bad news. And Paul is actually doing the exact same thing. He's he's actually talking about the second part here, the the good news to follow the bad news. And see, here's the good news. There is a hand reaching out to rescue. That's the good news. It's, It's not a fairy tale. It's not a myth. It's not a legend. There is a hand reaching out to rescue. There is a hand reaching out to save. The second part tells us in Paul's language grace has appeared. Grace showed up. Grace came to rescue when we could not rescue ourselves, grace appeared. How? Where? When? Why? Well, grace appeared in the form of a baby. You see, in a little town called Bethlehem, grace appeared. In a simple carpenter shop in Nazareth, grace appeared. At an old well somewhere in Samaria, grace appeared. On a hill outside of Jerusalem, grace appeared. From inside a cold, dark, borrowed tomb, grace appeared. You see, the unique grace of God that appeared is. Jesus, this is the definition of this grace that has appeared. Jesus came. Jesus appeared. Jesus came to bring grace, to bring salvation. He came to rescue. He came to do that which we cannot do ourselves. A few weeks after Jesus was crucified, a few weeks after he rose from the dead, Peter was standing in front of a crowd of people, and this is what he said. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. This is what he says about Jesus. There is salvation and no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other name. The the name is Jesus. Jesus is the name. Jesus is the grace. Jesus is the rescuer. Jesus is the savior. The only way that your mind and heart and soul can be mentally and spiritually satisfied in this life or in the life to come is through Jesus. Jesus is the one who appeared. Jesus came to bring grace. Jesus came to bring salvation. Jesus came to rescue. And he came to rescue all peoples. Does that mean everybody gets to go to heaven? Man, good news. All roads lead to heaven. Believe in whatever you want to because Jesus appeared, and so that means everybody gets to be saved. No, that's not what it means at all. The sentence right before this one, Paul's talking to some people. And if you remember from last week, he's talking to slaves. He's talking to people that probably would never have the opportunity to experience any concept of what it means to be free on this earth. They would not know what it meant to have real life on this earth. They would not know what it meant to experience freedom as they walked upon this globe. But Paul writes to them because he wants them to see that there is life in Jesus, that if they do not have freedom here, they will have freedom one day. Now, some people will say, ah, it's kind of a a shallow promise. I mean, if you're a slave, you know, it's a promise of something that will happen later. What kind of promise is that? Look at it in this context. Which is better, 70, 75, 80, 85, maybe 90 years or forever? (laughs) I mean, do the math. It's it's not really hard, you know. So Paul's trying to encourage them to let them know, I have some forever freedom for you. I have freedom that lasts in this life that helps your heart and your mind and your soul here. But when you die, I have freedom that will never, ever, ever go away. Life in Jesus Christ. See, when Paul says all will be saved, he's not saying that everybody gets to go to heaven. But this is what he's saying. Don't miss this. He is saying that anybody could go to heaven. Anybody. The most ruthless criminal can be saved. The meanest drunk can be saved. The most deadbeat dad can be saved. The most fear-controlled, control freak mom can be saved. The white person, the black person, the Asian person, the liberal politician, the conservative politician, the evil dictator, the Nobel Peace Prize winner, even the unregenerate church member. Anybody can be saved. No one deserves grace, but nobody is too far away from grace. Nobody is out of the reach of God's grace. I want you to know some of you have family members and friends that seem like they are beyond the reach of God's grace. Some of y'all have people that you work with that you feel like are beyond the reach of God's grace. But you know what? I go back to the hymn I read just a moment ago. Why do we receive from his reward? I, I can't explain it, but this I know. I do, I have, I will receive from his reward. There is absolutely no person that the grace of God cannot reach. You know how I know that's true? Because I'm a Christian. <laughs> and I, if there's anybody who is farthest away from Jesus, it's me. You know why? Because I'm human. Because I sin. Because in some ways, even when I might have been a nice little kid, I still wanted my way. And see, God rescues people who think they want their way. And then he shows them his way. And he opens up the beauty of eternity. And he opens up the beauty of love. And they see truth for the first time. Heinrich Suso put it this way. We sing this at Christmas time, right now, ye need not fear the grave. Peace, peace. Jesus Christ was born to save, calls you one and calls you all to gain his everlasting hall. Christ was born to save. Christ was born to save. Listen to those words now, ye need not fear the grave. I'm just gonna take a statistical guess. There's people here this morning that are afraid of dying. What a great Christmas song to sing in, what is it, July or August, whatever. It's August, August 2nd. What a great Christmas song for August, Christmas in August. I do not have to be afraid of death. I actually belong to Jesus Christ. You see, there's hope because grace appeared. Grace appeared, so there's hope. And this grace is not just like a a one-time gift, you know. You don't re-gift this grace. This is a grace that never stops giving. You see, the grace that comes through Jesus Christ, the grace that appeared, the grace that brings salvation is also a teacher. So what does grace teach? Look at verse 12. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. So grace teaches us to have a no day. Grace teaches us to say no. And to say no to what? Well, a couple of things here. Ungodliness and worldly desires. What is ungodliness? I love how Adam Clark defines it. All things contrary to God, whatever would lead us to doubt his being, deny any of his essential attributes, his providence or government of the world, and his influence on the souls of men. In other words, ungodliness is anything that causes us to think and live and talk as if God is not really God. I'm so thankful to Miss Barber in our prayer time at 5 o'clock on Wednesday for reading a passage of Scripture from the psalmist that I cannot get out of my mind. So I'm giving it to you, and hopefully you won't get it out of your mind either. Psalm 46, verses 1 and 2. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. That is an astounding passage Let me see if I can apply it to how we live every day Basically what that says is this When it seems like everything in your life is falling apart Never had a day like that, right? When it seems like everything in your life is falling apart A believer does not fear When it seems like everything in our country is falling apart A believer does not fear When it feels like everything in this world is falling apart, a believer does not fear. Why? Because our God is God. That's why we don't fear. And even if it all slips away, and even if it all fades away, the reality is we still have this promise. Grace has appeared. Grace has rescued us once for all time. So nothing can touch us nothing. As we sang just a little earlier, the curse of sin, it's, it's lost its grip. It can't do anything to us. I think the psalmist did not just write that because he thought it was neat. I think he wrote it because he had experienced it. He had been in those days where he knew he was thinking in an ungodly way. He was thinking, well, God's not really God. and God can't really handle this, and, and God's not really in control. And he said, you know what? Grace is tells me that even if the world crumbles, I have nothing to fear because God is my God. So grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and also teaches us to say no to worldly desires. Now what are worldly desires? Well, most of the time when we hear terminology like worldly desires, we immediately think don't drink, don't dance, don't cuss, don't smoke, don't go to movies, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, on 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 and on and on and on and on and on and on. And surely there's some things as Christians that we don't need to do. Like if you take like 75 selfies of yourself every day, yeah, you need to quit doing that, all right? You need to get rid of your selfie stick, seriously. But it's not so much just conduct here that Paul's writing about. He's he's writing about something deeper. He's asking a question in what he's writing, trying to see what's the system that runs your life. Do you run your life by the systems of the world, or do you run your life by the systems of God? So a worldly desire is that the system of how you do things always looks like the system of the world and not the system of God. John Chrysostom said it this way, A man is very short-sighted if he sets all his heart and expends all his labor on things which he must leave behind when he quits the world. But an even simpler interpretation of worldly desires is that they are four things we could not show to God. (laughs) That's it, right? I mean, that's the only phrase we really need. You see, a a worldly desire is the kind of thing that leads us to say, hey, I know what the Bible says, but you just don't know my situation. Or a worldly desire is to say, hey, keep it to yourself because, you know, only God's going to judge me. A worldly desire says, hey, you know what? That's just how things work in the real world, and you're just going to have to deal with it. A worldly desire might even say, hey, if I ran this church, ran my business like you guys run this church, man, I'd be out of business. It's a a worldly way of thinking. It's a worldly system. It it says, well, this is how this works, and so everything else should be that way, even if God says it shouldn't be that way. And so Paul's writing says grace teaches us not to to think like that grace teaches us to think differently in other words what grace does is cause us when it comes to the decisions of life to say one of two things can i do this in faith can i do this in faith if this is something that i can do knowing that it still would not bring dishonor to jesus but i love the second part and it would be this and it's from Chrysostom. can i show this to god that's it right Can I show this to God? Can I show this in my marriage to God? Can I show this attitude toward my kids to God? Can I do this behind the scenes at work? Can I show this to God? It's a great way of thinking of worldly desires because a worldly desire says, I'm my own man, I'm my own woman, it really doesn't matter what I do. But grace, grace says you are not your own. You've been bought You've been purchased, you've been rescued, you've been saved. And so grace keeps saying, you know what, I've been rescued, I've been saved, so this decision is not about what I want, but I'm going to make the decision based on the grace that I've received. I mean, think about this practically. Think of the nicest person in your life. I mean, the person, it might be a grandparent, a parent, a friend, but somebody who's just always nice to you. I mean, is your response... As soon as you can to do something mean to them, or is your response to to want to honor them, to want to please them, to to want to be in good graces, so to speak, with them? Yeah. How much more when you've been rescued from eternal separation from God, how much more is that a motivation for your decision-making? See, grace teaches us in the moment, say no right now because you have Jesus, and he's better than this. He's the best. So don't say yes to this. Say say no to this ungodliness. Say no to this worldliness. But it's not all about the no. Grace also teaches us to say yes. Saving grace is the kind of grace that doesn't just always say no, 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 no. I don't want you to walk away thinking that this morning. Saving grace is the kind of grace that also teaches us to say yes. What kind of yeses? Look at verse 12. And to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present. I want to break these down just really fast. Sensibly. We've seen this word throughout this portion of the letter. It means you have a saved mind. It means you have some self-control over what you do. It means that your attitudes and your opinions. I'm going to stop there just for a second. I want you to think about your attitudes and your opinions right now. Okay. (laughs) I'm just really, I'm really out there right now, but here we go. I want you to think about your attitudes and your opinions right now. We'll start light on food. You can always start with food. You know, you may be a cake person. You may be a pie person. I don't know. All right, now I want you to think about your opinions and your attitudes on raising kids. All right. Now your attitudes and your opinions on on what you should do at work, maybe the ethics of work or or how you feel about homework or school or, or whatever. Now how about your attitudes and your opinions on politics? How about your attitudes and your opinions on living in this community and functioning in this community? How about your attitudes and your opinions on how you spend money and how you spend your time? All right, now take all those and back up to this. Are you living sensibly? Are your attitudes and your opinions being fed by the truth about God? It's a big question. I'll say it for myself. It's a hard question for me to ask when I look back over my week. Am I really setting my attitudes and my opinions based on who God is, based on his truth? Jerry Bridges put it this way. There's a form of self-control that says yes to what we should do as well as that which says no to what we shouldn't do. So grace, saving grace, teaches us sensibly to to say yes to the things of God. It's our yes. Next, Paul says righteously. If you ever see that word righteously, it sounds like kind of a a big church word. I've always liked how someone told me one time to think about it. It just means rightness with God. We're talking about being righteous. You're just talking about being right with God. And so if you're living righteously, it means that the people who are around your life normally, okay, none of us are perfect we're going to have a bad day in traffic. We're going to have a bad day in line at the store. It's all going to happen. But normally, people would know that we're right with God. They would see that in how we think and how we talk and how we act and, and how we treat them. They would see that, that we have some rightness with God. Next, Paul says, godly. Remember how we define ungodliness a minute ago? Adam Clark put it this way, all things contrary to God. You know, Acting like, like God's really not God. So if you're living a godly life, if you're saying yes to a godly life, what you're saying is yes to this notion that I'm going to live my life in sync with who God is and his ways. And I'm also going to not forget that God is God. I'm going to keep reminding myself that God is the one true God of the universe. Now, when are we supposed to be living these godly, righteous, sensible lives? Well, Notice what Paul said there in the passage. He said what? In the present age. I don't mean to bust your bubble, because I'm one of these people. Are you one of these people that you wished you were born in another time? (laughs) I do. I think I would have been really cool in the 1850s. You know, I don't know why. For some reason, I'm just thinking, I would have loved that time frame. That just feels like where I would fit. Um, Maybe that's bad. I don't know. Maybe even that I just admitted that might be bad, too. I don't know. But you ever have a day where you're like, man, I wish I was born in another time. You know, well, look, you weren't. You know, this is when you were born. You're alive now. You're here now. This is your time. This is your time of influence. This is your time of life. Your time is right now. And so what you do now matters. Your future is right now in this moment. And so you are defining your future not just for eternity, but you're defining things for our lives as well because your life influences us and influences people even outside in the world. And so your time to live for Jesus is not later. You can't say, "Ah, I'll get around to, you know, going to church or I'll get around to, you know, doing some of those Christian things at Easter and Christmas. You you can't. That's, That's not the nature of how life exists. Life is fragile. We are not promised tomorrow. And so the time to live for Jesus is right now. This is the time to live for Jesus. So you can be a very religious person and not be a Christian. You could even be a church member and not be a Christian. You could be a really nice person and not be a Christian. You could be a really mean person and you know that you are not a Christian. But here's the thing. When it comes to this saving grace, this grace that has appeared, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done or haven't done. It doesn't matter which side of the tracks you grew up on. It doesn't matter what your race or your socioeconomic background or your political opinions are. It doesn't matter what you have or what you don't have. There is absolutely nothing that would preclude you from receiving God's saving grace. You're not too far out of his reach. See, the beauty of this saving grace is it appeared to let us know salvation has come. Salvation can be found, and it's found in Jesus. You can be saved. You can be rescued. You can be redeemed. There is a hand, and that hand is dying and has died to reach out and rescue and save you. There's a story about a family in Europe that years and years ago... They saved up all of their money to buy tickets to sail to America. They had been there for three days on the boat, and they had been rationing their cheese and their bread that they had brought. And finally, the little boy in the family was like, I just can't take it anymore. Man, he just lost it. Whining, complaining, pitching a fit, big temper tantrum. He said, there's no way I can eat another ounce of cheese and bread And then he dramatically prophesied his death if he had to eat more cheese and bread. And so it must have been yesterday on the boat because his dad gave him his last nickel that he had and told him to go down to the galley and get him some ice cream. So the little boy took off. He was gone for a long time. When he finally came back, he had a huge smile on his face. He looked up at his dad. He goes, oh, man. I had a steak dinner and three ice cream cones. His dad looked at him puzzled and said, How in the world did you get all that for a nickel? Oh, I didn't didn't get it for a nickel. You see, it's all free. The food is free with the ticket. They're sitting down in the galley. They're sitting down in their room, tearing apart a little piece of bread. There is a huge steak dinner waiting for them free food with the ticket. I remember sitting in a restaurant one day, and I'll embarrassingly say I found out later this person was a pastor. But I remember overhearing him across the restaurant just shouting at the top of his lungs very angrily. He said, I ain't never had a free lunch in my life. And I was so tempted. I was, but I didn't, I, I didn't say anything. But I thought to myself, every lunch you've had is free, sir. You have nothing apart from the grace of God. Nothing. And friend, that's true for us. The food is free. But it came at a very high price. It came at the price of the very blood of of Jesus but it has come. Grace has appeared and it has appeared to rescue your heart. It has appeared to restrain your heart from sin. Grace has appeared to help me and you say yes and no in all the ways that we're supposed to. And grace has appeared so that way beyond Christmas time, way beyond just Easter, but every second of every day that we might be able to sing from the deepest part of our soul, now I do not need to fear the grave. Christ has come to save. Christ has come to save. Let's pray.